0: So we're taking a a step off on Sundays of our series Eschaton. We were doing a series on Eschaton, really giving you the whole picture of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Eschaton, the climax of history. Where is history going? What is God doing? Taking a Moving that specific series now to Thursday nights. And so if you're really into like end time stuff and how does this all work out? And is the church defeated in history or is Jesus victorious in history? Come on Thursdays for the exciting conclusion to that, okay? So we're moving that to do God the Healer now on Sundays. And this, I think, is a significant message everyone needs to hear. Now, if you're in this room and somebody would just drag you in the room tonight, you are welcome here, okay? And this is the message you need to hear. If you need to know what Jesus and his message of life and peace with the cross ultimately is about, this is the message to be in, And if you're a believer in this room tonight, you have been reconciled to God, you are forgiven, you are saved, you are in Christ, then this is the message you need to hear. Because anything about healing at all, whatever, has to be built upon this foundation. What we have to say tonight is a necessary foundation to build everything else. God the healer is really about being honest about our condition. You look around the world, we look at our fallenness, we look at brokenness and tears and sadness, distorted relationships, you look at uh, distorted sexual relationships, you look at sadness, depression, you look at tears, you look at medications galore, trying to solve every problem anybody has. You got anxiety? Take this pill. Have you ever drank water? Take this pill. I mean, it's like for everything, right? There's an answer for everything. And, and, and the world wants to know, like, how do I heal from this? And only God has the answer, ultimately. You know, I was—I wanted to share this with you. I don't like to give a lot of biographical stuff in a message, but I think this would be necessary to sort of give you what we're aiming at. I worked for... Um, uh, I think over four years at a um, drug and rehab facility. It was a hospital, one of the oldest ones in Arizona, for about four years, and I saw some of the ugliest situations come in. I don't mean the person, I mean hearing these stories. I've had ministry for a long, long time. I've seen a lot of brokenness. You know, when you're a pastor, it's not always fun you deal with some of the ugliest things on a a daily basis. Everybody that has a hurt, they come to the pastor. So you're not always hearing the great things. You're oftentimes hearing the worst case scenarios. You're hearing the ugliest situations. And being in a hospital surrounded with doctors and nurses and professional therapists, here I am, the lone chaplain. And uh you know, it's interesting to just, just, just to listen at times to what was being told to people. You had people come in and they were struggling with anxiety. And so, what they do? They had a lot of anxiety. They had a lot of fear of the future. And so, what would they do? They would use heroin. They would they would shoot it. They would smoke it. Uh, people would want to have fun. They wanted to have pleasure. They're bored. And so, what would they do? They would take a bump of cocaine, or they would be you know doing ecstasy. And so, where did they end up? In my lap. Uh, All all the, all the pursuit in the world of all these different things, you know, I feel lonely and sad, so I drink. I feel guilt and shame over my past, and so I try to wash it away with the alcohol. And it's, um, I want to just share this, I share it often when I talk about that. Um, one, one of the things I thought was compelling is, I'm not sure that Ann Landers is a Christian, but she had a great answer to this, and, and that people that, um, that drink alcohol to get rid of guilt and shame need to know that guilt and shame can swim extremely well i want to just say it's important for us to, gra- to grapple with this because I-, I wanted to say something bold it-, it is it's very bold and it may seem arrogant it could seem cavalier and sort of in your face but i believe that the biblical worldview is the only worldview that is true and i think it's the only worldview that could answer any of our problems Well, I don't think we have a basis for science or logic or math or beauty or truth or goodness without God. Now, that's foundational. I don't think you can even talk without the Word of God at your feet. I don't think you can do science. You don't know that the future is going to be like the past. You can't do logic without the Word of God as your foundation. You can't do math. You can't say something is truly beautiful without God. Because if we're just protoplasm bobbing on the surface of the cosmos, what is truly beautiful? Nothing. You can't say something is either good or evil without God, because there's no ultimate standard of good or evil. There's only just what is, and your own personal perception of what might be good or might not be good. And so there's no real good or evil without this God. But I'm going to go a step further, because most of you already know that. If you're fans of Apologia Radio, you hear it all the time, right? <sighs> yes? Fans of Apologia Radio? Okay, come on now. Um, by the way, we have somebody visiting right now from Apologia It Heard us on Apologia Radio. Yep, yeah, there you go. From where? Memphis what that's you know, happened for like the last three months have people from across the country coming or apology or radio. It's awesome It's awesome. Why aren't you listening? I don't understand this <laughs> I was joking. Um, But you know, I'm gonna go a little a step further and say you guys know that we 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 always as as believers in this church say like we need to be about the proclamation and defense of the gospel tell people the good news but also be about defending that gospel The Bible commands us to do that. So I want to go now a step above it now and talk about really important practical things. Listen, if we don't start with the Word of God, we can't even talk about healing, real healing. You know, I I was in this daily, the worst of the worst of the people abused. I heard the most horrible stories you can possibly imagine in four years daily, at least five appointments a day in front of me telling me the worst of situations. And every single time this person would say, Here's my story, it always led to, and then I went this direction heroin, alcohol, pill abuse, whatever it might have been. And you know, it was amazing for me to, to for God to be able to 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 for God to put me in that situation to see this, I think, is compelling. And I was I observed over four years the secular world looking in at image bearer of God problems and trying to offer a solution that made sense. I looked at people that came in with, with, with desperation because they felt lonely and say they would go off to use drugs and alcohol in some way or their life was in shambles in some way. And I would watch people give them advice like, you feel lonely. And let me give you a 45-minute lesson on loneliness, how to overcome loneliness. And it was just basically like, if you're lonely, phone a friend. If you're lonely, don't sit there and be lonely and then drink and use. If you're lonely, go f- see a movie. If you're lonely, join a singles club. I mean, these are the sorts of things that were just cast out uh, it, uh, amongst the most broken of people all the time. Or lessons on anger. People would say, I get angry all the time. I get angry. I get so angry. And It's a 45-minute lesson on anger management. And what was it? If you get angry, take a cold shower. If you get angry, take deep breaths. Now, I, I have something to suggest. I already knew I should do those sorts of things. You, I mean, I'm paying you to tell me to take deep breaths in a cold shower? Obviously, we know anger is bad, and we should be doing these things, but I can't help it. When I get angry, I want to punch you and not the pillow. Don't we know these sorts of things? But you see, the world tries to provide a response that is that is that is uh, ultimately, I think, hopeless, and it's just putting sort of um, a facade over brokenness that still remains. A person is lonely. Listen, you're not going to overcome loneliness as an image bearer of god by simply going to see a movie because at some point the movie ends right you're not going to overcome loneliness as an image bearer of god because you get a friend because we all know how friends have done with us amen if you're an adult you know what i'm talking about friends at time here's the thing put two sinners in a room together you get one outcome sin and if you've ever had a friend as a sinner and they also were one And you know what the result was. We hurt each other. We step on each other's toes. So you never really overcome loneliness by setting up an idol of this relationship. Listen, loneliness exists for image bearers of God because they're image bearers of God and meant to be in deep and lasting and full and real fellowship with the true and living God forever. God is not lonely. God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has been in existence from all eternity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he is not lonely. He's the happy God, the Bible says. And he is eternally complete and not lonely. And an image bearer of God in rebellion with him will begin to experience loneliness in a fallen world. And so the world doesn't have the answers. You have anxiety and fear of the future. And so what does the world tell you? Anxiety and fear? Take this pill, right? That's the answer. And for how long do I take this pill? Six, 12 weeks, two years, 10 years, 15 years? You see, the world says, anxiety and fear? Take this pill. Take deep breaths. It's all surface level. Only the biblical worldview, only God's revelation can provide for us the answers to really satisfy and heal all these issues. All these issues are at their base image bearer of God problems. Listen, I'll give you the straight answer just quickly because you're probably wondering, well, how would you answer that? Anxiety and fear are very simple. Anxiety and fear of the future really settle on one place, unbelief. I don't believe. I don't trust God. I don't trust him that he's in control of all things. When a situation happens to me, chaos is rampant. God's not in control of this. He couldn't possibly be in control of this. Look how wrecked this situation is. Look how horrifying this. God could not have known about this. God must be off, too busy, not caring enough about me. We start thinking, we're setting up an idol. That's not God. That's not how he runs his world or takes care of his kids. But yet we believe it. We look at the circumstances and we look at those circumstances and we don't look up like Jesus did. He would always elevate his eyes above the circumstances and pray looking up as if to look above the circle. We don't do that sort of a thing. We always look at the circumstances and say this is truly what's what is and what's real, and so God must not be in control, and so we don't believe God. And as Christians we struggle with anxiety and fear because at core, at the core of anxiety and fear is just unbelief. I don't trust God in his promises. That when he says in Romans eight twenty eight, All things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, in this moment of anxiety and fear, I don't believe it. I don't believe it in that moment. And so what do I do? I freak out. I freak out. (laughs) Now I can say this as an ex-freak-outer because it's a major, major transformation that took place in my life as a believer. And it wasn't through a simple pill, although medicine is good for a limited period of time and for help in a moment of real despair. Of course, we're not saying those things aren't helpful. We're saying long-term healing can only be provided by God. And we were to answer it from a biblical perspective. We don't have an answer at all. So our series is about God the healer. We're going to talk about things like loneliness. Does God intend to heal you from loneliness? My answer is yes. I'm not saying that you won't ever experience loneliness as a Christian. I'm saying God intends for you to have victory over it because when he saves, he saves mightily. And salvation is more than just simply a ticket for heaven one day. Salvation is about God saving people from their sins and bringing them into a relationship with his son and then healing them. God is a healer. We talk about issues like depression and guilt and shame. We talk about anxiety and fear of the future. You talk about a lack of joy and pleasure. Listen, these are all issues that only the Word of God can provide an answer for, and I believe that God intends to heal us from these things. I know it from His Word, and I know it from experience. And and stories could be lined up, a myriad of people and testimonies that could tell you the same thing that I'm going to tell you. God intends to heal you but there has to be a foundation and so here's where we're going to start if you missed last week we've got to start with the foundations and the first point i want to make is just this number one there's a problem we talk about all these things in the world depression and sadness and loneliness now i don't want to i don't want to just simply say let's go for those things and see how we can answer them as a christian that's the wrong way to go about it i'm going to say those things are symptomatic of this problem the problem of our fallenness we are image bearers of god We are made to be in a deep and intimate and worship-soaked, glory-soaked and exalting relationship with God for all eternity. But in the garden, when God creates us, we fall. We rebel against our God. And so what sets in that day? God says this, you can do this, you can't do this. What do our first parents do? They disobey. And death entered the human race that day. You might think, what kind of death? Like physical, they fell over. God said to them, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The day you do, you will surely die. But we know as a fact of history and the historical record that God gives to us, Adam and Eve didn't die physically that day, did they? But did they die that day? Yes. God says, the day you eat of it, you will die. And they did die that day, and they were separated from God. And I want to say the core of all the problems in the world, name it, war, lies, deception, theft, murder, go down the line, all of the brokenness displayed in the world as a result of that departing day where our first parents abandoned the relationship of the lover of their souls to drink in darkness rather than to bask in light. They did that that, that day and they were separated from God and death entered the human race and all of us from that point on are born sinners and rebels. But here's the problem. Image bearers of God cannot cease being image bearers of God in God's world. It's impossible. Cars are designed to do a specific thing. They drive, they roll, they move. The steering wheel is in the place that it's in because that's where it works for the people supposed to be driving it. The gas pedal is where it's at because that's where it works with us. Cars are designed to do a specific function. You cannot alter it. It's what it's made to do. And human beings cannot cease being image bearers of God in his world simply because they're rebels. You can be a rebel against God. It doesn't mean you will cease being an image bearer. And I used an illustration last week. If you took a coin with an image in it, and you took that coin with the image stamped in it, and you threw it into the mud, it's image. It's hard. It's covered a bit, but the image doesn't get erased and just because we're rebels against our maker doesn't mean that that image of God is gone now. It's impossible to erase that image. He is so active and imminent; it's impossible to escape him. And so here's our fundamental problem. Romans chapter 1. Go to it in your Bibles. Romans chapter 1. Again, any healing we talk about, has, whether you are in this room right now and you don't know Christ or you're in this room and you are a believer, this is the foundation of everything we have to say about healing. Without this, we have no feet. Without this, all talk about healing, suspended in the air. You're not rooted here. And again, if you're new to the room tonight, you're new to the story of Jesus and the gospel, you came at the best night, because we're going to tell you the story and why. Here's the truth. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and on after it talks about the gospel as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, then he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. Now, just here's the important thing to get I'm not going to do the whole text. We've done it a hundred times here at Apology at Church and for, for a very good reason. But let me just suggest something to you. Think about what salvation is being promised through this good news. It's God's good news. And now, now listen closely. He then goes on to give us some very, very bad news for three full chapters. It is straight up ugly, sin-soaked text. It is not good. You do not go to somebody's hospital bed and read from chapters Romans 1 through 3 to give them encouragement at all. Of course, unless they don't know Christ, then you read that chapter and you do it fast, okay? Because they need to hear it. But if they're a believer, you don't come with Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 1, because this tells you the story, the bad part of the story, the fallenness that's true of all of us. No one in this room is outside of the scope of Romans chapter 1. And listen closely. He says very clearly that we know God. You know how we know? It says that he has made it evident to us. Now here's the question. If an all-powerful, eternal, limitless God, who is transcendent and nothing is impossible with him, and he makes his image bearers in his image, If he sends the message of himself into the question, does it get through? Yes, he says so. He has given us all the evidence of him and the knowledge. What's the problem? The problem is we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It's not that we don't know. It's not that we don't have enough information from God. It's not that we don't have enough light knowledge. It's that we're rebels Listen, what's true of the atheist is true for us before Christ. Whether you come from religious background, raised in a Christian church, same situation. All of us suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness. And Paul says very clearly in the next few verses, even though the creation is just testifying to you about God, it is screaming at you about God. It's telling you about him everywhere you turn and every painting you look at and every beautiful song that, that provokes emotions and memories in your mind, and every good-tasting meal, and every star and the moon and Saturn and its rings and all the beauty of the universe, all of that is shouting at you about God. And yes, even baboons, because those are all. It's shouting at you about God. It's telling you about God, and it's inescapable. So Paul says that they are left without excuse. So what's very clear is just this. Get this and you're going to get everything. We are in his image and it is inescapable his knowledge. We can't escape it. But we hold the truth about him down. And what is our plight from that point is that image bearers of God are simply wrecked. We are wrecked. And what we do is we involve ourselves now in a distorted situation where we're made to worship him. The lover of our souls, the one who created us to know him, we're made to be in this relationship with him of delight and pleasure and joy and worship and exaltation. But we take that and we shift it in a very dark way to instead of worshiping the creator, we worship the creatures, created things. We start creating idols in our lives. That's the problem. We're sinners against a holy God and we switch him for idols. And it is fundamental. To talk about it is fundamental to your life, whether right now you're in Christ or not. We are idolaters. We search God for idols. And if you're a believer, know this: it's a struggle for believers to melt these idols the rest of your life as a Christian. It's a struggle you will pursue for the rest of your life, and you need to be involved in. John says so at the end of his epistle. He says, "Little children, keep yourselves from idols." Who's he talking to? He's talking to Christians. He didn't say, unbelievers, keep yourself from idols. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's talking to believers, people who know God. You're in a lifelong pursuit of getting rid of these things as a As Our default position is idolatry. So, what do we need to know? Last week, quickly, we talked about John 5. You can write it down, look at it later, or listen to last week's message. Just very briefly. Jesus healed people. He healed people. Real people. He went to bedsides. There's was a little girl. She was dead. It was her funeral. They had professional mourners present wailing and weeping at this funeral. Jesus comes and says, she's sleeping. And everyone mocks and laughs. While the Son of God comes to the bedside of this little girl, this little private meeting with her parents and small meeting. And Jesus says to this little girl, he says, little girl, arise. And a girl who was dead arose physical life. Jesus gave eyes to people who were blind. He gave hearing to deaf people. People couldn't walk from birth. He would say, get up. They stood up and they walked. Created a lot of contrast. And here's a situation in John chapter 5 where I want to point a few things out from last week that you need to capture because I know there are people in this room right now thinking that you are unqualified. You are thinking you are far from God. And I want to say you need to melt that idol life. That's not the God that we're talking about. The God of all creation, of all the universe, the eternal God, the limitless God, who is love and just and holy, the righteous one that all of us have offended, he condescended, took on flesh and walked among us. And when he walked among us, he healed people, like in John chapter 5. Notice about the healing is that here's a guy, he's 38 years old, he's been there a lot. And he can't get there, he has no ability to get down there. Everyone keeps getting scooting ahead of him, he's been doing it a long time. And Jesus wades through the crowd to find this one man popularity contest. He he looks for the broken one. But notice first of all that it is Jesus seeking him. You may think, well, maybe I need to do something for healing. I need to sort of like polish myself up, make myself look good for God, and then He'll be interested to heal me. Maybe I need to have it where God will actually heal me, like the charlatans and con artists on TBN will tell you. You have enough faith. So send me $5,000 and you get a magic mustard seed and my handkerchief. Whatever it might be, charlatans do that. You don't have enough faith. That's why you're not healed. I had a friend years ago named Charlie. He's with the Lord now. Head up in his brain. He's about two weeks away from dying. And some faith healer came to him and said, the reason you're dying is you don't have enough faith. That's deplorable. It's not true. It's not Christianity. Jesus comes to the man who what is unqualified. He has no faith. He doesn't even know who Jesus is because after Jesus healed him, Jesus slips out, and this guy is like, <laughs> "Hey, he's freaking out. He's walking now, and everyone else is stirring too." And said, so "Like, who was it that healed you?" He's like, "I don't know. The guy that told me to take on my mat. He's the one that healed me. Who was it? I don't know." Jesus. Comes to a man, seeks him out, who is entirely unqualified. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't have enough faith to heal him. Nothing. He has just got one thing, a condition of complete helplessness. And Jesus seeks him out. And then later on, he finds him at the temple. He says, see, you're well. And then he says to him, go and sin no more. So I want to point this out to you. Number one, Jesus sought him. Number two, he was completely unqualified. He didn't know Jesus. He didn't trust in Jesus. He was just there, sick. And number three, every time Jesus heals, it's unto holiness. Get that. There's a purpose behind it. I'm going to just, you got to grab this. This is so critical. I made a very, very strong point. I want you, very, I want you to think about long and hard. The little girl that Jesus raised from the dead, she died. Lazarus was dead for four days. Jesus raised him from the dead and he died again. People that Jesus gave a sight to, they were, big. guess what? They died. They died. People who were deaf, he gave them ears to hear and then they died. Every single healing that Jesus did, those people ended up eventually what? Dying. And so what was it? Was Jesus healing among us simply to give us This moment in history that none of us could witness. None of us were there. Just simply, just for the little crowds that were there, there was a small crowd present at Lazarus' resurrection from the dead, out of the grave. Small crowd. And guess what? Amazingly, it says, some believed and some didn't believe. How crazy is that? you got to consider this. Dead man comes out. You're like, whoa. People are like, nah. Chris Angel did it better. (laughs) You see, at the point people actually have some answer for. Ah, maybe there's an explanation for that. Maybe this was staged. Who knows what their excuses were? But the fact of the matter is, very few people saw these healings. Be honest, honestly, in the whole vast scheme of humanity, very few people in Palestine, two thousand years ago, witnessed these healings. And I want to suggest to you, it's because the healings were not about the physical healings alone. It was about Jesus teaching the world about who he truly was. He is the one that gives eyes to blind people. He is the one that gives ears to deaf people. He is the one that can raise the dead to life. Jesus was displaying and walking on the waters, not a feat, a magical trick, simply that his disciples witnessed on a boat. Know this, they were at sea. Very few people witnessed that moment. So why do it? Why do it? Here's why he did it. He did it to testify for the rest of humanity's existence. The truth. He is the God who stills the waters. The Psalms say that only God does that. Jesus did that. He said, "Be still," and they were still. Jesus controls all of creation. He walks on water. Has Peter walk out with him? But more importantly, I want to, I want to suggest something to you. When you look at the healings in the New Testament, they are not some magic trick. They are new. He can raise people from the dead. He did with that little girl. It's to speak to a bigger issue that he is the one that can take people who are fundamentally dead before their creator and he can give them into their life. He can take a person that is completely helpless. They cannot walk. They cannot move. They cannot do anything to help themselves and he can make them walk again. And the kind of walking that he gives them, the kind of seeing that he gives them, the kind of hearing that he gives them and the kind of life that he gives to them is something that is permanent. It doesn't end. So when I suggest this to you, when I suggest that God is the healer, know this, I do believe that God can heal people from their sicknesses. I believe it's possible, but it's at his discretion and according to his will, and it's not always his promise. I said something very, very risky last week. I said, God may have given you your cancer for his glory, and that's true. He's not impotent. He owns the universe, and he declares the end from the beginning. That's why every single affliction you and I have, you can say there is a purpose in. But you know what I do know? I know this as a fact. God heals believers for eternity. When he gives you eyes to see, those are permanent eyes to gaze upon him. When he gives you as a believer ears to hear, they are ears to hear him always, and to always follow him. When he gives you life now, believing in him and saving you and raising you to life that is life that is eternal that's why it's called eternal life it starts today now in christ the healing that jesus gives to us is lasting it's not just a temporary thing we're looking for but it has an aim to it and the aim is to holiness in some way or another so i'm going to talk really briefly about the foundation here it is i'm going to run you through probably the most significant part of the entire thing and that is the good news. We use the word all the time, gospel, good news of Jesus Christ. And here's why it's such good news, because of the backstory I just told you. We are rebels against the king, and it is madness. To go chasing darkness when God is light is madness. To run off into evil and hatred and depression and lying and theft. When God is good, holy, never lies, he is a God of love and joy and pleasure in his presence forever it's madness to go that direction but we do it's the bible says what happens in romans chapter 3 is ultimately this all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of god if you're in this room that arrow should have just pierced you because nobody is beyond its reach if you're in this room we are all related i don't care what color your skin is i don't care what you look like doesn't matter We're all the same human race, the same family. Color your skin, your height, where you're from, how your eyes are positioned, how big or small your nose is. doesn't make a difference. We all come from the same parents. And all of us have the same problem. And it says in Romans chapter 3, read it from 9 on down. It says there is none righteous, not even one. None who seeks for God. And it says very clearly there's no fear of God before their eyes. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And it is tempting. It is tempting to read in Romans chapter 3 what God says about humanity. It is honestly so tempting to read everything like, "Mm, I think I know who that guy is. You read Romans 3 where it says there is none righteous, not even one. And you think, sure, but not really, right? Don't we have great people in history that have done great things? Sure, there have been people who have done good things. But there has never been a good person aside from Christ and who he was. So listen, the Bible says very clearly that our condition is completely broken and helpless. And Jesus taught in John chapter 8, he says, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. So I ask you, have you ever sinned? And if you say no, because you just did. John chapter 8, Jesus says, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And it's powerful because listen, The true meaning of what Jesus was saying there, he says to the Jews, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin in John 8, and the Jews of his day are crazy. They're tripping. They're straight tripping. They say what? They say, we had never been a slave to anybody. It's like, hello? Do you see where you're standing? Jews saying we've never been a slave to anybody? Are you kidding me? Pharaoh? Babylon? The Romans right now? What do you mean ever enslaved to anybody? And Jesus is talking about what slavery? There's slavery to their sin. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Jesus says, but if the son sets you free, you should be free indeed. And let me just suggest to you, if you are in this room, that is a fundamental need you have right now. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and that is all of us, and only he can set you free. The Pope this week said that it's not necessary To believe in God, to be right with him. Oh, yes. And now you know why we're Protestants. (laughs) Protestant. I protest. It's a fundamental denial of the gospel. The Bible says, whoever has the Son has the life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have the life, but the wrath of God abides in him. And this is the very ugly part of the message that you need to hear the most. Because all the talk of healing is futile. Not understanding this one point. As rebels against God, we are not just sick. We are not kind of broken. We are not sort of bad. The Bible says the wrath of God abides in us outside of Jesus. God is love. Not just loving. He is love. Everything thing you've ever tasted of love is just an instance of the kind of love that God is. But he's also just and he's righteous and holy. And our problem is we fundamentally hate him. And if you don't believe that it's that graphic, read Romans chapter one. It says we're haters of God. All of us are in there. We don't wear it on our sleeves always, but it's true away from God and it's madness in us. If we don't have Christ, we are lost. And the Bible says this very clearly. Romans chapter three. Go to it. I want you to see it. More important than you see it with your own eyes. Romans chapter three. Let me. Let me. As you get there, I'll read through Romans three. Starting in verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become useless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a lot. And know this, it's blocked out in our Bibles because it is actually a collage of verses that Paul brought together from the Old Testament. He's taking all these verses and he's stringing them together. And I want you to consider something that is hopeful right now as you read this. Listen closely. When it says, there is none who seeks for God, embrace that for a second. Can I ask you to do that? Can I ask you right now, listen closely to what I'm saying to you. There is none who seeks for God. It's not a flippant response of God. Like, there's no one who seeks for God, kind of. There is no one who seeks for God as a truth about all of us. We don't seek him. You didn't go looking for him like the sick, broken man at that pool. That's all of us before God. Unable to walk, unable to move, not knowing his name, not having any faith, totally unqualified. None who seeks for God is God who seeks for his people. And I want to give you this. If there's none who seeks for God, then the question must be asked right now what are you doing here if it's true there's none who seeks for god and yet here's phil there's jamie sarah jim pastor luke over there amy none who seeks for god and yet here you sit what does that mean you're under his grace at this very moment Because in yourself and in myself, this is the very last place we would be. We don't go look, he goes looking for the broken. And then he raises them on their feet, gives them eyes and ears and life. But you know what happens is this, in this very broken relationship with God, all of us are rebels against God, and we can't cease being image bearers of God, and so we go running off into his world as image bearers, trying to do the things that an image bearer does without him. And it's impossible. We try to be artists without God, that's impossible, there's no beauty and there's no artistry without God, no foundation for it. We try to do math and logic without God, that's impossible also, there's no foundation for it. We try to do science, we try to work in the world to help people and heal people and we try to do it without God. We try to to and, and overcome the obstacles of image bearers of God in a broken relationship with them. We try to say, well, fear of the future, so let's solve it with a pill, let's solve it with a seminar. We feel all these things of depression and just seek the salve somewhere else, but not with God, not with him. And so one of the things we do in that relationship is we can get right with God by obeying his law. And Paul attacks that right here in Romans chapter 3. You can see it right here in in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law speaks to those, sorry, we know that whatever the law says speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgments. For no one will be declared righteous in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes to the law. Let me just give you guys a little bit of encouragement right now. You will never, and I will never, ever stand right with God in ourselves. You won't. I can't. You're looking in front of you right now at a liar, an adulterer, and in my heart, I've hated people for God. I am guilty of every wicked sin you could possibly imagine. Standing before you right now is that kind of man. Who has peace with God? I'm not here as a pastor, as a pastor because I'm good. I'm not right with God because I'm good. I'm in myself. I'm wicked. I'm a rebel and I'm the good kind of rebel. I'm. And the Bible says this, the law was given not to make you righteous. It was given to shut your mouth because the law doesn't make you better. The law shows you who God is and it testifies to you who you are. When God says, you should not lie, we don't go running off and grabbing that going, okay, so now I won't lie, so I'll get right with God. Too late. It's too late. James says, whoever should keep the whole law and stumbles in one point is guilty of all of it. When the Bible says, you should not lie, it does show that I have committed that sin. I'm a liar. The Bible says, you should not have any other gods before me. It shows that, yes, I'm an idolater. The Bible says, you should not commit adultery. I know what God, so know what? If you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed that act because sin begins where in the heart the law shuts you up no one will ever stand before a holy god who is perfect in all his justice and say well god let's open the books let's see how i've done you don't want that by the way don't ever ask for it don't ever ask for it the bible says no one will be declared righteous in his sight by the works of the law that means you can't do it you will never stand before this judge and get away with that You'll ever stand before him and say, but I believed in Jesus and I tried really, really hard to get right with you through these good deeds. That's the religion of man. And uh, one of my favorite preachers in all of history, get to know him, George Whitfield. He was the bomb. For real. George Whitefield. Many people say he was actually the true father of the American nation because it was his preaching and his theology that gave rise to this nation. You need to, you need to learn about him. George Whitfield said... <clears throat> People trying to get declared righteous before God, trying to be made right with God through their good deeds is like people trying to build a ladder to the moon out of sand. It is too far a distance and it is an impossible task. You won't make it. Not after the first step. Because God is righteous and holy and he is perfect and we're not. And the fundamental problem with all of us and all of our broken is not so much that we need a pill or a seminar. It's that we must have reconciliation with God. And how does it take place? Through our good deeds, through our works, maybe through a little combination of both. Like Jesus' work, his death and resurrection, and also we'll come up, make him bedfellows. We'll get that going on. And then I'm right with God someday. And again, that destroys the entire gospel. It's not good news. If you tell me that my relationship with God is based somehow on my merit in any way, In my good deeds, in my performance, I despair tonight because he is too holy and too good. And so I make a garbage heap of my good deeds and my bad deeds, and I flee them both to Christ. Famous statement by Augustus' top lady was just that. Flee your good deeds and your bad deeds to find yourself hiding in Christ because Paul then goes on to say, well, so what's the deal? He says, but now, you gotta love those two words, by the, way, by the way, but now. Three chapters of ugly, ugly, ugly sin. It was just, you're this, we're this, we're this, we're foe, we switch God for idols, we go off, we're worthy of death, we're haters of God, not righteous, non-God-seeking, no fear of God, our feet swift to shed blood. <sighs> but now, you're like, <laughs> hey. And by the way, can you imagine, like the first time getting a letter from Paul in Rome, the church in Rome gets a letter, Paul, hey, a letter from Paul. a letter from Paul, a letter from Paul. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. It's all ungodliness and the righteousness of men who by their righteousness suppress the truth. You're like, Oh, I woke up early for, for this. <laughs> it's three chapters of ugliness and ugliness. And all of a sudden, now you can see the bright light of the gospel. But now, here's what he says. Apart from the law, separate from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. What's it saying? The law and the prophets told us about this. And now, it's revealed that is God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, listen. Pause for a second, please. Forgive me. If you're new, I am. I. 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 I, I care so much about not speaking over the heads of people who come in the room. I don't want to make any assumptions and assume that you know any of those words. Redemption, justification, all these things. We walk into the room and go, Jeff, I don't know what that means. Here's the truth us, That God has promised to us righteousness. And it is a righteousness that is apart from God's law. It is separate from it. It is a righteousness for all who believe because all of us have sinned. And it says this, listen closely, that we are declared righteous before God freely. It's a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And Paul goes on to say that God displayed Jesus publicly as a propitiation. Again, you go, I don't know what that is. Is that a light chicken gravy? Propitiation? I don't know what that is. <laughs> It's very important. Propitiation means that it was a diversion of wrath, that God diverted his wrath away from the sinner and it was absorbed fully in Jesus, that he fully exhausted and absorbed in himself all the justice, all the guilt and shame and wrath that was due to his people on that cross that day, that God displayed Jesus publicly before the world so that he could remain just. Because God can't say to you, he can't say to you and I, can say, I love you so much, I let you go. That's a false God. And you know what? Quick tip. How to spot the false God right there. Every religion of the world recognizes a problem of sin and brokenness, whatever it might look like, and whatever version of God they have, whatever religious text they have, whatever ceremony and whatever they do, they all say, this. yeah, we're broken in some way, yeah, we're sick in some way, whatever it be, but they say, watch. God loves us so much, he can let it go. That's a false God. You know what? That's a lower standard than our human judges. Human judge before the person in the courtroom. Person's brought in, they have committed violence against everyone around them. All the victims are in the room. The person says, Yes, I did it, and yes, I enjoyed it. And if you let me out, I'd probably do it again. By the way, that's us. Stands before the judge, and the human judge says to him, Well, ready to get my verdict cameras are all going off fox news cnn MSNBC. everyone's ready to hear the verdict. everyone's holding their breath ready to hear the verdict of all that's going to be given to this criminal before the judge in the court who's broken all these laws and has confessed to it as guilty and judge goes i've really taken a liking to this man and i'm going to go ahead and let him go say that's not justice it's not real And you know what's amazing is that people, worldly religions, man-made religions, they can't get that part right. Every version of God they have can never deal with the most important issue, that God is just, and he must deal with. And if God said to anybody, I love you so much that I just let it go, he would cease to be God, the universe would collapse. It's impossible. But God displays something even greater. And here's what is so great about the gospel is that that cross behind me, that symbol of what happened 2,000 years ago represents both the infinite justice of God and anger against my sin and yours and the limitless love of God. Place The cross does not just tell you about the love of God. It's not just the love of God. It's His anger and wrath against sin. And what does that mean? It means what Paul says next. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from works of law. What's that mean? That God declares you righteous by faith apart from works of law? That this Messiah, Jesus, was coming as the representative of his people? That Jesus was coming to live the life that you and I have failed? We've run away from God. We've hated God. We've been enemies of God. We've chased darkness rather than light. We've loved it more than God. We've tried to live in God's world as His image bearers. Apart from Him, it's impossible. And here comes Jesus, the righteous one, as a man, to live the life that we've failed, to die in the place of His people, to take your death, to take what was due to you, and He conquered it and rose from the dead so that the truth of the gospel is that forgiveness and salvation is proclaimed to you through Jesus and in Him and in Him alone, through faith. The call of the gospel is to turn from your sin to come be reconciled to God where there is peace and there is life and there is forgiveness. Jesus tells you to come and to die to rise again with him. And that's not something you're looking for simply in the future. That life is now. The message of the gospel is repent and believe the good news for forgiveness. And you need to hear that because, listen, you we have no basis to talk about loneliness and healing from it And depression and a lack of joy and pleasure and anxiety and fear. Because listen, you should have anxiety and fear as an image bearer of God apart from Him. It only makes sense. It only makes sense. Depression, loneliness, sadness apart from God makes sense. It does. A lack of joy and pleasure makes sense. You know why? You're going to learn about this next week. Ready? Second question you have in your catechism is, what is man's primary purpose? And here's the answer. Man's primary purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And the verse is Psalm 1611. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Do you hear that? I'm going to say it to you again. I don't think you did, because you're probably freaking out like throwing things in. (laughs) In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. It makes sense that image bearers of God struggle with a lack of pleasure and joy apart from Him. It makes sense. But guess what? What does this cross mean? What, is the story, what does the message of Christ mean? It means this. That people who are rebels against God, who are unworthy of His goodness and grace, can come to Him to be joined to Christ. To come be wrapped in His righteousness. To come to the One who took their death on that cross. Fully and finally absorbed in Him. So that Jesus could truly say to people, if you commit sin, you're a slave to it. But if I set you free, you will be free, kind of. What does he say? He says, if I set you free, you shall be free indeed. The the story of the gospel leads very clearly into Romans chapter 4, where the truths of the gospel get into this. Chapter 4, verse 6. Likewise, David also speaks of the blessing of the man God credits righteousness to apart from works. How joyful are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. How joyful is the man the Lord will never charge with sin. Let me just say this real fast. That is awesome. We just landed on the truth of how you are healed. Can you imagine somebody that is an enemy of God that's at war with him, that he chases them their entire life, he wades through the masses to get to the one who needs him, and he heals them. And what does he do? He counts them as righteous. He looks at you, and he says, righteous. And then your friend or your friend says, no, 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 liar, liar, deceiver, thief, adulterer, murderer, drug addict, whatever your story is. And God looks at you because you're in his son and he sees your identity as new because you're raised up with him. He sees you wrapped in his, son, see you as your shame and your guilt. He sees you as in his son, righteous, blameless, forgiven, at peace. And he has counted to you righteousness apart from your works. What's that mean? You didn't do this. You never have. You never will. You're in Christ. You have a new identity, not because you deserve it, Not because you earned it or you're saying, God, I'll get better. You're hiding in Jesus. You're wrapped in Him. His life counts as your life. Your death was buried in Him on that cross. And you are raised to new life with Him. That's why Paul can say in Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That God counted Jesus as the rebel, and he counts you as righteous. And he, watch this. How joyful are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. How joyful is the man the Lord will never charge with sin. Let me take you here for a second. I want you to think about your life for a second. I want you to think about the guilt and shame you know that you own in yourself. We're all there before the cross, all sinners, and can you imagine the glory of this good news, this God who chases rebels like me, like you, and he actually says to you, he counts you as righteous. But God, I'm not. And he'd say, my son, you are. How 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 beautiful is this God that he would take someone like me and he would cover my sins, that God will never, ever count your sins against you again. That Can you imagine your life and your guilt and shame, everything you've ever done, every way you've offended this God, that in Christ, he looks at you and he's covered your sins, and he will never count them against you again. We often think of God as sort of like a God that's like, well, because I'm God, I kind of have to do this sort of a thing, but you know, I'm really, I really have it out for you. Like on the back end, I'll get you someday. For now, you're good. But Later, I'm reserving some, just so you know. It's a lie. It's just a lie. The glory of the gospel God says that he will never count your sins against you, and blessed is the man. How joyful are those? You know why you can have joy as a Christian? Losing your house, losing your car, with no money in your bank account. Everybody's backstabbed you. Everyone's abandoned you. People mistreat you. They count you as ugly. You have nothing. You know how you can have joy? because your sins have been covered and god will never count your sins against you again the most fundamental of all of our needs is is found in christ there isn't anything bigger than that you understand that in the end all of us stand before him naked no one comes with you will not bring your stuff your job will not come your diploma will not come no one's answers for you will count your cars won't come Nothing else comes. You stand before him naked, and the most fundamental of needs is your relationship with him. Are you at peace with him? If you want to talk about healing, that's where you start. It's being reconciled with God. That's the beginning of any healing, because guess what? I can talk about pleasure and joy now if I have access to him. I can talk about freedom from loneliness now that I've been reconciled and restored into relationship with him. I can talk about no fear and anxiety now as a believer. Why? Because I can tell a Christian who's in Christ, I can say, he does not count you guilty. He never will. You're his child. He will bring you to life. He will never lose any of those who are given to him ever. He will raise you up at the last day. And he promises that nobody can snatch you from his hands. And what can separate you from his love? What? Life. Death, peril, the sword, nakedness, famine. Can anything separate a child of God who's been reconciled to God from his love? Nothing can. And I have those promises for you. Guess what? Jesus spoke very specifically to his kids, to his children, when he tells them very clearly, do not be worried. You know what people need more than a pill? Matthew chapter 6. You know what's amazing is, I'll just share this with you as we leave, there's a lot more I have to say. But when you find Christ, because He's drawn you to Himself, and you trust Him, and you're forgiven, and now you've been brought from death to life, and you have eyes to see Him now, and ears to hear, He begins the process of healing your soul. And all the ways that you used to chase bootleg pleasure, false idols in place of God, he begins to now master those and own those and melt those. And it's a process. But I I ended with this about healing. I started to say, I began with this about healing. That The foundation of all healing is salvation, reconciliation with God. Then we talk about the other stuff. But when I was brought to Christ, I was the guy who freaked out. I had freak out sessions. Freak out. I'd be screaming at God, yelling at God, mad at God. Why can't you? And I'd be, if things didn't go my way one day, I was ticked. I love you, God. Hosanna. Hosanna. I get a phone call. What's that? What's that? I'm like, God, where are you at? You've you abandoned me, God. You don't love me. How could you be God and let that happen? You're not really God. You couldn't be God because you let this happen. I was that kind of guy. I don't have that much money in my account. I'm not secure. I don't have enough, I don't have enough of a cushion. Oh, God's abandoned me. He must be far off. He doesn't love me. He doesn't care. He's a mean God. I, I, all those things. I remember one time I was driving 60 East, passing country club, and I had my fist up at God screaming at God. Because something didn't go my way. I didn't get the amount of money I thought I was gonna get to take care of my family. I had my fist up, and I'm like, God, you can't love me. You couldn't possibly. I'm looking over at cars next to me, they're like. <laughs> Get home. God settled. Got in the Word. God spoke through His Word. Settled my heart. Call. Everything was fine. I was like, "Oops, I'm sorry, <laughs> sorry." But it was a message I went to before, and it was um, it was at a church, and and uh, I had been having these freakout sessions as a Christian, as someone who was saved with a new heart, who loved God, and I go to this message, and I was struggling hard with anxiety and fear, and I had panic attacks. I had straight panic attacks. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't breathe. My hands would shake. I was just this is like a constant thing for me as a, as a believer, as someone who is saved. A great Lord and telling people about Jesus. The moment something didn't go my way, freaking out. So, pastor opens with the Bible. Jesus says, "Do not be worried." Can you add a single hour to your life? I thought, mm, "We can't do that." Can you change the color of your hair? No. He says, "Look at the birds. It'll sow, reap, God." takes care of them. You are more value than them. That God knows of every sparrow that falls. He determines it. And so Jesus says to his kids, he says, don't be like the unbelievers. They don't know me. God's not their father. They don't know him. Don't live like them. He's your father. He knows what you need. And I thought to myself, that's it. That's it. I'm his. Everything that I'm thinking of is because I don't believe him. i as he is. I'm living like in two worlds. I'm living like I, the way that I'm not seeing God as father, as providing, as loving, as caring for me, as militantly committed to me and my good. I never saw him like that. And so I, I'm living like that. Like he's not my father. Like I can actually change the future by worrying about it. And I committed that day to fall on that passage. You know what happened in my life? Anxiety and fear got met with the words of God that are mine. He's my God. I'm his child. He saved me. He doesn't count my sins against me. He never will. He's covered all my sin, and he promises all things work together for my good, and Jesus tells me, do not be worried. He's not giving me a road sign as a suggestion. He's telling me what not to do. Don't be worried. Can you add an hour to your life, Jeff? I thought, No. So Jesus says, stop it. Stop. Can you change the color of your hair? This is not hair dye, but you know. No, I can't do that. Can't do it. And Jesus says, you're of more value than those birds. And I'll end with this about the birds. So God healed me from anxiety and fear. It's not to say that I don't struggle with events that hit me, but I know where to go now and I know what to fight back with. And it's not pills, and it's not alcohol. It's with God. So I'm having this moment where I'm struggling, and God's bringing me through the struggle on purpose. I had no ability to feed my family. I didn't know how it was going to work, and I'm struggling, and I'm fighting God. How are you going to provide? So I had $5. I had two babies. I had, I had Sage, I had Imogen, and I had my wife. They had an apartment. No way to pay our bills. I have got $5. This is after he brought me to himself after addiction. And I blew up everything. It was my fault. I'm guilty, but God saved me. And there I was, forgiven, right with God, and I'm intimate with God and I'm enjoying God. But I got five dollars. I needed more like three thousand. How's this gonna happen, God? How's it gonna work? And I'm actually hungry. I'm all the way in Scottsdale, I was going someplace I was supposed to go to try to figure out how I'm gonna make this work. And I ended up stopping at a coffee shop and I was like, you know, those indignant moments, I'm like, I got five bucks. I'm eating. So, what? Let's go on. Let's end it. (laughs) So, I buy a bagel. I mean, cream cheese was 50 cents. I'm sitting there outside. I'm sitting at this little table and I'm eating this bagel and I'm thinking, God, how are you going to take care of me? And so, I'm meditating on this promise, this verse that just had gotten spoken to me in my life at church. I'm like, just Lord, I trust you. I'm going to trust you. In the midst of all of this struggle, I'm praying and I'm trusting God. I'm like, Lord, I know that you're in control. I know that you promised my good, but how's it going to happen? It seems, help me, God. Give me something. And so I have this bagel. And so I'm taking the bagel. This is the bagel down on the ground because a little bird all of a sudden came up and just standing at the, my very tiptoe, this little bird is sitting at my foot, looking up at me. So I'm looking at this bird. I'm like, oh, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do this. I'm going to eat that bird eats it looks back up at me again i'm like all right throw the bird okay all right you're eating my whole bagel here so i'm eating the bagel and i look down at the birds just sitting on my foot they're just throwing down my thing and all of a sudden it dawns on me what was god doing he showed me that very moment look how i provide for the birds i didn't even realize it this insignificant thing of me throwing these little crumbs down at this bird And I'm in this moment of despair. Like, God, help me. How are you going to do this? How are you going to get me out of this situation while I'm throwing down the crumbs of the bird that he's providing for at that moment? And then he turns around and takes care of me. And so God begins to heal you as a believer. And after you've been reconciled to him, he begins to show you, you can trust me. You don't need to fear the future. You you don't need to be lonely because I will never leave you or forsake you. Nothing can separate you from my love. So let me leave you with this call. There's lots more to say. Keep coming because this is a long course of things we're going to talk about. But let me just say the foundational thing I want you to get is this: everything I'm saying to you right now about healing is senseless if you don't know Him. If you don't, so let me give you this: if you are in this room and you don't know that you're saved, you don't know that you're forgiven. Let me call you in your sin. To... You don't need to. You can turn to Christ from where you sit. We're sinners against God. You need to have peace with Him. It's only Jesus for sinners was buried and rose again, and He calls you to come to Him for life. If you don't, the Bible says the wrath of God abides in you. And the Bible also tells us if you're a believer that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me just suggest something to you as a Christian in this room. Don't pretend to be strong. Don't pretend to say, I don't struggle with loneliness. I don't struggle with guilt and shame. I don't struggle with depression or sadness or anxiety. The truth is, all of us have to walk through those storms and just know that as a believer that you can heal from all those wounds by coming to his word. So let me encourage you, if you're a believer, this week, rest in your identity. what? He counts you as righteous apart from works, and he has covered all your sins, and he will never count your sins against you again. That should change the way you walk out these doors. It should change the way you approach work tomorrow. It should change the way you do your li- And gentlemen. Right? I hate doing dishes. I hate- You're saved. You're not condemned anymore. You're forgiven. I only got 50 bucks in my account. You're forgiven. No more ration. This relationship's difficult. Yeah, but this one is right forever. It changes everything. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your goodness, salvation. Thank you, Lord, for this moment. Lord, I pray right now for those in this room that are, are not reconciled to you, God. They still hold on and choose their darkness over you, God. They're running away from you, God. I pray even now you'd give them a heart of flesh and, and remove a hard heart towards you. And I pray even now, God, you convict them and challenge them. God, I can't do it. I cannot give to them what only you can do and that is give eyes to a blind person, ears to a deaf person, to cause them to hear this gospel and turn to you. And for those, Lord, of us in the room that are your kids, God, I pray for healing, Lord. I pray that you would cause us to to delight in and revel in our relationship and our identity with you, God. The fact that we are not condemned, that you are righteous, and you have counted that righteousness to us, Lord Jesus, and that we are now forever no longer under your judgment now, but your children and raised up with you. And I pray that you would just bless us, God. Help us, God, every day to meditate on the truth about our identity in you and what you have done, the glorious things you've done, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray, amen.